we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, I am really excited to get to be with you today and kick off this important, important series. And I love hearing the stories of what's happening in your congregation, and I think this is a timely, a timely set of messages. So um, it's, it's just such a privilege to be able to join with you in these important days. Um, in a few moments, we're going to take a look together at some passages of scripture from the life of Jesus. One was recorded by the writer of the book of Matthew, and one was written down by Luke. So we're going to take a look at Matthew 28 and Luke 15 primarily, and you can look in your Bible or on your Bible app, but it'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along that way. Well, as we jump into this new series, Tell the Town, I want to tell you about a defining experience I had a couple years ago. I didn't think it was going to be a defining experience, had no idea we were about to head into a situation that would be so pivotal for me. Um, My husband and I have three grown children, um, and a couple years ago, my oldest daughter was pregnant with her first baby and our first grandchild. And we were kind of sitting around uh, the dining room table talking about what we were going to do on New Year's Eve uh, while they were all staying with us and realized that the next year we'd have an infant and that that would really change the plans a lot. So we got a little crazy and decided we were going to bundle up and go into the city of Chicago and watch the star drop. Did anyone know that Chicago had a star? Not a ball, but a star. Did you know that? I didn't know that. They don't have it anymore, so don't go looking for it. But it was kind of a maybe a couple times and they were done with it. But there were bands playing, and we got bundled up and decided to go to some of our favorite coffee spots and our favorite donut place. And then we made our way to um, the area near the Tribune uh, Tower, I think it's called, maybe the Trump Tower, too, on the river. And... um, we kind of settled into an area where we could listen to the bands across the river and watch that star come down. But my kids were getting kind of deeper and deeper into the mess of the crowd. And I was starting to feel a little bit, a little bit claustrophobic. So I started backing up as they were kind of pressing in. Um, and I made my way kind of across a little, like half of the street onto this island in the middle of the road into what appeared to be a safe group of people for me um, so that I wasn't so anxious in the midst of all of that. And I reoriented myself to that dropping star and um, realized that in front of that island, there are about three or four people with megaphones parading back and forth. And they were yelling in in the megaphones, come to Jesus, Jesus saves, Jesus loves you, the wages of sin are death. And And that went on for a while, and I obviously was very attentive to what they were doing and very aware of the crowd's response. And I think at first the crowd was patient. They were kind of hoping they would say their piece and walk somewhere else and share their message. But they didn't go away. 
And um, I witnessed the crowd becoming a little more irritated. And there was one gentleman who was a little bit louder than everyone else who kind of became the spokesperson for that crowd. And he started to say, get out of here. Like, leave us alone. We're trying to hear the concerts. And when he got a positive response from the crowd, he got louder. And the irritation and the intensity of that emotion began to escalate. And I was feeling incredibly uncomfortable and very conflicted in that moment. Um, and finally, he said, leave us alone. Go somewhere else and talk to your invisible friend. <gasps> I gasped. I mean, I'm a pastor, for Pete's sake. And I'm a follower of Jesus. And I wasn't sure who I was in that moment. <laughs> I wasn't sure what my response would be. On the one hand, I felt like... Um, I felt a bit compassionate for these missionaries from another country who had come and were filled with passion to tell our town about Jesus. I also thought for a moment how wrong we've been sometimes in the waves we've entered other countries with good intentions to share our faith. Um, so I was thinking about all those things. I was, I was feeling badly for them, but at the same time, I was very grieved about what the people around me might be um, thinking about people who call themselves by Jesus' name, by people who call themselves Christian. And I was concerned about what was going to play out in that moment. Have you ever witnessed anything like that? I think if you walk down the streets of our city, sometimes you'll see folks with microphones and signs preaching sermons on street corners. Maybe it's at an athletic event. Maybe it's something that the cameras pan to at a major sporting event. But a passionate person attempting to reach people in a very grandiose way. But there's also another extreme. Out of fear, or maybe even embarrassment, some have grown completely silent. They don't want to be identified with people like that, those Jesus freaks. Or they believe that if they can't communicate like a Billy Graham, then they really don't have anything to say at all. Maybe you relate to that. Well, I wonder if you'd be willing to pause for just a moment right here and think about where you see yourself in that story I just told. What have, would you have been feeling if you were in my shoes? Maybe you're someone who thinks Jesus was a good man. But what's up with these people parading in front of a group of people shouting in a megaphone? Maybe... You're someone who's new to faith, and you're filled with passion and gratitude for what Jesus has done in your life, and you want to share your faith, but you're not sure how. Or maybe you're someone who's grown maybe a little cynical and silent, and you simply just want to exist in your comfortable way of life with your family and your church the way that you know it. Well, I want to encourage you to be here each week as we discover what Jesus really had in mind for his followers to do and be when he told them to go and make disciples. I think you'll find something much different than what many of us have witnessed. And there are no microphones or megaphones or soapboxes or bad attitudes involved. So I wonder... Is it even okay in this day for us to talk about faith? Or have we decided that faith fits in that box of what's personal? And if it is okay, 
why and how would we do it? Well, there's some changes that have taken place in the way that we think in our culture that um, have had a big influence on those questions that I just asked you to, to consider. In my job, I spend a lot of time on social media. Uh, my team uses social media to kind of keep track of what's happening with the students, what they're involved in. Um, often they don't tell us when their games are, or their events, so we kind of find out from social media the general things that are happening in our community. We keep track of families. Sometimes we find out people are sick or in the hospital from social media before anyone tells us. Um, we use it to equip volunteers, to remind volunteers of important things coming up, and to cue parents about questions they might want to ask their student through the week based on what we had just talked about with them. It has so many great uses. But there's something interesting that is happening that's playing out on social media. I don't think social media is the cause. It's simply being displayed, and it's easily seen there. You see, we've begun to substitute this face-to-face -face storytelling about our personal lives, our personal experiences, in the context of really connected, close relationships with something called social snacking. So imagine with me, your finger is doing this on your phone, and you're scrolling down looking at the pictures of other people's lives. So keep that image in your mind. Years ago, I might have bumped into someone in the store and we'd catch up if my husband wasn't with me. We would tell the story of all the things that had been happening in our lives and we'd share not just the facts, but what meaning those had for us in our lives, how those things were affecting us. So for example, I might share with you in that store aisle that my grandma had just passed away. My grandma and I were very close, and even though she was 92, she was 92, which meant I had been with her my entire life. She was there when I was born, she was there when my kids were born, and she was there when my grandson was born. She was a significant person in my life. She was a nurse. She was a foster parent. She moved from coal mining towns to Detroit on her own while her husband was away at war. She was such an admirable woman. She was fierce before girl power was a thing, and she was filled with compassion for her family. She prayed for everyone in our family, especially those in our family who were struggling, who were, who were struggling to find their way. And I miss her all the time. And through that shared experience, as I told you about my grandma and what she meant to me, our connection with one another would grow deeper because you would know some, some things about me that were meaningful. But in social snacking, Think about the finger scrolling down. You might scroll through my social media feed and see that my grandma passed away. I actually posted this picture of her. That was in the back seat of our car as I drove her from Howell, Michigan to Wheaton to see my dad in the care center. Can you imagine that? My 92-year-old grandma brought her to see her son who is not doing well. Um, quite an incredible woman. You would see that, and you would know what was happening in my life. You would know the facts. You would see those occurrences, and you would begin to feel a sense of familiarity with what was happening with me. But familiarity is not friendship. 
It's affected our kids as well. Our kids are often deprived of telling us the stories of their lives because often we've posted all the things going on as parents and we, we show them playing in their games and we tell scores of games and um, their dance recitals and all these things. And often adults will approach children and say, hey, I saw what you did. And those kids sometimes don't even know how we know. For example, in our town last week, there was a daddy-daughter dance sponsored by the local PTA. And many of the dads and daughters from our church attended, and there were pictures all over my social media feed, just like this, of dads with their daughters in their dresses. And it would have been easy for me at church on Sunday to say, hey, I saw you went to the daddy-daughter dance. You looked so pretty in your dress. End of conversation, right? But before social media, I might have seen that same little girl and said, hey, how was your week, Mackenzie? What happened? Tell me about it. And she would have the opportunity to tell me what was meaningful to her, what was important to her. We've begun to substitute this social snacking for the kinds of conversation that allow that back and forth exchange that really helps us come to know another person, not just know about them. Because the truth is, knowing and being known by another person takes time. Another thing that I've noticed that's changed in us socially is how willing we are to open the doors of our lives through social media. Think about it. We post things about ourselves emotionally. We tell people when we're having a bad day. We post spiritual things, our spiritual insights, our spiritual thoughts. We post what's happening with us physically. I've had the flu. We show pictures of our dinners. We open our homes to cameras more than we open them to people. We put our noses in other people's vacations, their home remodels, their personal lives more than we ever have. Yet at the same time, most people have adopted the idea of keeping their personal lives very tight and minding their own business in real life. As a pastor, there are students in our ministry who will be in the hospital, and we'll call them and say, hey, we'd love to come pray with you before your surgery. We'd love to come visit with you. And they'll say, no, no, that's too embarrassing. I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to see my hair messed up or whatever, right? And I can understand that. I, I felt that way myself. But the next day, I'll see pictures on social media of incisions and IVs and crazy stories about things that happened in their hospital room, and I'll scratch my head and go, wait, I thought you were embarrassed. <laughs> Do you know how many people just saw that? We've created this really odd personal bubble. We've come to be so open and yet so closed at the same time. And that just hasn't affected us socially, but it's also impacted how we share our faith. We've traded, I think, what Jesus intended his followers to be and do in this world for these gunshot statements posted on social media, political statements, and these cheesy church signs, right? We desperately need to remember the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. We can't afford to lose sight of what he taught and modeled so beautifully for us as he reached out to people to reveal the heart of the Father. You see, Jesus modeled that reaching people happens one conversation at a time. And it should be the same for us. Sharing Jesus happens one conversation at a time over the course of time. 
And when we lose sight of Jesus' example, we end up living in the extremes that I just described. There's a story that's been in the news recently. Um, Elizabeth Smart uh, was a 14-year-old girl who was kidnapped from her home and held captive for nine months. And recently, one of her captors was released from prison. Um, So the news kind of picked that all up again. Elizabeth was rescued when her family, who never stopped looking for her, began to put some really minuscule pieces together that led them down a trail that resulted in her being found. She lives her life on mission now. She's a mom. She's got children of her own. But she works tirelessly with parents, with law enforcement agencies, and with worldwide leaders to focus and shine a light on children's safety. She speaks publicly across the U.S. and on television, and she emphasizes that the actions of everyday people like you and I can help lost children be found, and that hope always exists to find any missing person. And I was thinking as I watched her of the pain she experienced, and I wondered why. Why does she do it? Why doesn't she just stay at home with her babies and keep them safe and keep out of the public view so she doesn't have to rehash that painful period in her life? Do you know why? Because she was found. And as a found person, she realizes more than anyone the gift she's been given. And she realizes that every single missing person deserves to be found not just her. And as people who've been rescued and restored by Jesus, our only response can be to join him on mission. And Jesus was so clear about his desire for us to join him. The writer of Matthew recorded this amazing exchange uh, that Jesus had with his followers. Look at it with me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Meanwhile, the 11 disciples were on their way to Galilee, headed for the mountain Jesus had set for their reunion. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship yet, about risking themselves totally. They still had doubts. But Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge to all of them. God has authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you, and I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. And I think it's our custom to read these amazing words and interpret them based on our modern-day understanding of these words, Maybe not so much on what that author or speaker intended. So we see words like train and instruct, and we interpret what Jesus said as meaning we need to take people through school, put them in rows, help them learn more information about Jesus and about the Bible, and somehow we equate the knowledge base that they have, the expanding knowledge, with knowledge not just of Jesus, but knowing him right? We put those things together. And we've taken this great moment that Jesus shared with his first followers, and we've turned this great commission into three easy steps to sharing our faith. 
But when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke them to a group of people who had walked with him and lived with him over time. They followed him before they believed he was God, and he welcomed them to be part of the important stuff, knowing they were filled with doubt still about who he was. So when Jesus spoke these words, these people would have remembered conversations. They would have remembered the faces of people that they encountered and interacted with. They would have remembered lessons learned around a campfire and meals shared. They would have remembered being afraid. They would have remembered moments of great faith, getting run out of towns, seeing lives changed, and all of it together. And in Jesus' words, they would have heard, now go and do what we've just done together, and I'm going to be with you always. So what did this way of life look like? I think it would be really, really good for us to pay attention. How did he do it? Let's take a look now in Luke 15. We're going to make our way through this chapter, but let's start with Luke 15, verses 1 through 3. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listen intently. That first sentence lets me know that this was a regular occurrence in Jesus' life, hanging out with these folks. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all, and they grumbled or growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them and treats them like good old friends. Think about this with me. When an important religious figure comes to town, who do you think expects to spend time with him or her? Probably other important religious figures, not people of doubtful reputation. And why did it bug these religious leaders so much? Well, one writer, Eugene Peterson, says it this way. These Jewish religious leaders grumbled not because they were bad, but because they were good and good and scared. They were reverent. They were devout worshipers of God. They didn't worship false gods, and they weren't superstitious like the people in their culture. They were God followers. But now something is taking place that has turned everything upside down. Their self-image, their identity, is all based in their righteous practice, in their goodness. And Jesus is threatening their idea of their importance because he's spending time with people who simply don't measure up, and they don't like how that makes them feel. And their grumbling and murmuring was meant also to kind of point out that maybe Jesus wasn't credible or believable. After all, if he was believable and credible, wouldn't he be paying more attention to them, the good and the righteous people? rather than people of questionable reputation. And so as this all unfolds, as he hears the murmuring of the crowd, sort of like I did in Chicago, Jesus is prompted to tell a series of connected stories. And he starts with a story of someone who lost one of 100 of their sheep. Suppose one of you had 100 sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoice, and when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Have you ever found your pet was missing? 
Have you ever been out searching the streets at night for a lost pet? I've been there and I, I was panicked and I felt incredible joy and relief when I found our pet. And then the story of a woman who lost only one of her 10 coins. Imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure. She'll call her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. In both of these stories, the owner is hunting for one of something of which they have others. And yet each story ends with great rejoicing. We've all been there, right? I lose my keys all the time. Um, It's a joke. It's a joke at our church. It's a joke in my family. In fact, my son, we draw names as a family, and um, he drew my name, and I had a list of things I wanted. He didn't pay attention to the list. He got me something called a tile that hooks on my keychain and connects with my phone so I can find my keys. Not what I wanted, but probably what I needed. Um, We can identify with lost things being found. And at this point, all of those listening to Jesus tell those stories would have related and their defenses would be down. And maybe they were thinking, oh, you know, if that guy would just fix his fence, he wouldn't lose his sheep. Or maybe if you'd put your coins in the same place all the time, you wouldn't lose one of them, right? But then Jesus tells this story, and it takes a turn that his audience is not expecting. Let's continue. Luke 15, 11 through 32. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Dad, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between him and his older brother, and it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, which I learned means indulgent, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt, probably from his hunger. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would even give him those. That brought him to his senses, and he said, All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you and I don't deserve to be called your son. Will you take me on as a hired hand? So he got right up and he went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son started his practice speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring back on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. I'd given him up for dead and now he's alive. I'd given him up for lost and now he's found. And they began to have that wonderful time. Well, all this time, his older son was out in the field, and when the day's work was done, because he worked hard, right, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on, and he told him, 
your brothers come home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef for everyone, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in, ang in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You've been with me this whole time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead. He's alive. We thought he was lost forever and he's found. And no matter how many times I read this story or hear it told again, I can't help but be intrigued by the people in this story because it's a family story and I love families. And it's important for us to understand how family functioned in that time when Jesus told this story. You see, when the younger son said, give me my share of the property, it meant some pretty big things. First of all, it meant the father had already divided up the property evenly. One didn't get more than the other, so he was fair. Secondly, it meant the younger son intended to liquidate or turn that property into cash, meaning what? He had to sell it. He wants to sell it to someone else so that he can take that cash and do what he wants. So the property ends up leaving the family. And this would have brought incredible shame on that family as they watched the things that they had spent a life building be given away to someone else or sold to someone else. And asking to do this before his father's death was equivalent to saying, I wish you were already dead so I can just get on with what's owed to me. And finally, taking off to another country was walking away from his responsibility to care for his dad in his old age. There were no nursing homes. Children cared for their parents, period, and cared for everything that belonged to the family. And this decision had a profound impact on his older brother, didn't it? And I want you to remember that this story, this son story, directly followed two stories of other lost things, a sheep and a coin. But we need to note the differences. First of all, the son wasn't lost because the father misplaced him. The son was lost because he left of his own free will. And then we need to realize that the father, unlike the other two people in the stories, the father lets him leave. He doesn't chase after him or use a megaphone and send out a search and rescue party. He doesn't call all the neighbors to help. But at the same time, it's obvious that this father is still looking for him, watching for him, and waiting for him. And as we imagine Jesus telling this story, we learn from him that to reach people, it's going to take time. It requires a certain kind of waiting, the kind of waiting that is expectant and hopeful, believing that God is at work in us, in our loved ones, in our neighbors, in our friends, in our community. A lot happened in the life of that son, didn't it? While he was away, lots of things happened. And it was the relationship he had with his father 
and remembering the goodness of his father in contrast to the place he currently was that brings him to his senses much later. And he begins to long, to long to be allowed back into his father's home, even if he's only a servant and no longer a son. And in the same way, the relationships that we build with our friends and neighbors, the love and the warmth we share simply because we see each person as God's treasured child will serve as a reminder over time for them of the love of the Father because to reach people, it will take time. And as we listen to Jesus tell this lost son story, we also learn that to reach people, we have to live in the mess. Sometimes the mess looks like hurt and rejection that impacts us profoundly. Sometimes the mess looks like neighbors wondering what in the world we're doing. In the culture where Jesus introduced this story, that young son would have been considered a criminal, criminal, and he would have been owed punishment, severe punishment, possibly even death. And they would have been shocked at why in the world a father would allow such a son to return home. And sometimes the mess looks like wrapping our arms around folks that others might consider dirty or broken. Jesus' use of pigs in the story is not an accident. It's very strategic. Pigs, for those Jewish religious leaders especially, were a symbol of absolute filth, disease, and loathing. Does anyone live near pigs? I do. And I know when I walk out my door some mornings, the smell is unbelievable. So as Jesus describes this pivotal moment when the young son comes to his senses as he's working in pig filth, every listener would have had the same reaction, disgust. And in his mess, in his filth, the son decides to take a chance, to head home hoping to find mercy from his father, to even consider giving him the status of a servant. Jesus' listeners would have been expecting something very different, a very different outcome. And then, this unexpected turn. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. Jesus describes a father who is waiting and watching with expectancy, but he leaves the front porch. You see, to reach people, we have to leave our front porch. In doing so, he says, a new way has come. Pay attention. I'm going to teach you what my father is like, and it's not what you think, because you can join me in revealing my father. When the son decided to come home, he wondered if maybe, if he begged enough, the father would have mercy on him to use him as a servant. But the fact that he was dirty, that he had betrayed people, that he had squandered everything that the father had acquired, that he spent a lot of time with really bad people, none of it mattered to the father. What mattered to the father was that he returned. And in his fear and guilt, he was met by the father running to embrace him. I love, I love that the father didn't make him walk 
the whole distance. I, I can recall times as a parent that I wanted my kids to sweat, at, sweat it out, you know, to kind of wait to see what was going to happen. But this father didn't do that. He didn't make him wonder how he would be received. He left no doubt. He ran to him. He made the first move, and he went the entire distance, and he showered him immediately with tender mercy and with kindness. And then he called his servants to dress him in the wardrobe, wardrobe of a son, not of a servant, in case there was any doubt left. And then he threw him a party. And as Jesus told this celebration story, he painted a picture of grace. We use that word a lot in the church. But I hope you think of this story when you use that word. The undeserved favor, the lavish love, and the tender mercy of the Father. I wonder what it would look like for you to leave your front porch for me. Would it mean attending more of your office parties, the ones that happen outside the office after hours? Would it mean having more friends in your neighborhood or at work than you do at church? Would it mean inviting people over for a cookout or for a meal that are nothing like you? And should we think about what it looks like for us to leave our front porches as a church? Would it mean spending time more so in and for our community than in and for our church? Would it mean that we recognize how terrifying it is for someone to walk through our doors who doesn't know us at all? And so we go out of our way to make it as easy and as welcoming as possible. This all of this would be an amazing story if Jesus stopped right there, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. And he introduces or develops one more character, this older brother, the one who never left, the one who was loyal, the one who did what he was supposed to do, the one who took his responsibilities seriously. He squandered nothing. He was right and he was good until the dad threw a party for the wicked son. Isn't it amazing that someone else receiving a celebration can reveal what's in our hearts? It's interesting, the party, yes, was to welcome this lost son home, but the party was also a response of this father, the one who was the giver of this extravagant, extravagant grace. His joy over his son Returning home compelled him to give this party to celebrate. And who wants to celebrate alone? When we are filled with joy and excitement, we want people to join us. He wanted everyone to join in the fellowship of that excitement. And as the father talked with his older brother in that party scene, he invites him to share in his joy. You see, there was closeness that could be had with his father if he would enter into that joy with his father. He said, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. I want you to celebrate with me. Your brother was dead, and he's come back to life. He was lost, and now he's found. Let's celebrate together. And that's where Jesus ends the story. Boom. And as listeners... Swept up in the story with defenses down, they and we alike are left to wonder about the good son because he, by his own choice, ends up being 
in many ways more lost than his brother. Because now he's lost in relationship with his father. And now he's lost in relationship to his brother. And now he's lost in relationship to that celebrating community. And in wondering about the brother's response, if we are observant, we realize that there is no one right in this story except the father. And in this story, we all need to be found. And that is where we must begin as we jump into this series, Tell the Town, right where Jesus left us. Because to reach people, you have to realize your own need. When we realize our deep need and we bank on the mercy of this incredible father to forgive us and restore us to himself and the celebrating community, it is only then that we have anything to share. Our story of being found. And as I think about my experience on that New Year's Eve in Chicago, and in light of this amazing story that Jesus so eloquently told, I wonder, what if now, for such a time as this, we became party-throwing people of grace? What if the only thing that mattered in this moment was the realization that we are all lost, brothers and sisters, who are recipients of the grace and mercy of our party-throwing Father? Because reaching people looks nothing like what I experienced in Chicago and a whole lot more like a party. And our Father's begging us to come, all of us, to celebrate together as the lost who've been found and the dead who have come to life.